want to encourage those of you that are in the room, if you can, to grab one of our blue hardcover Bibles. These are on the seats in front of you, and you're welcome to grab one of those. And if you open up to page 1496, you'll find Matthew chapter 1 and a couple of columns of names. Now, moment of truth, how many of you just read over those names? <laughs> Say, let me get to the narrative part. How, how many of these names? I see, and I'm, I'm holding my hand up. Pastor Zach's holding his hand up. It's okay. You, you're not going to lose your sanctification if you read over the names. And that's what I used to do the majority of the time. In fact, there was once or twice that I did pay attention to those, and it was, there was a wealth of, of good stuff there. You find out that the lineage of Jesus Christ includes some people that were very far from Christ. It includes prostitutes. It includes scandals. It includes people that were foreigners that were brought into the family of God. It's, it's a powerful study. But even once I did those studies, I usually tend to just kind of read over. I can't even pronounce most of those names, right? And if you want to know how, you can listen to an audio Bible. That's a pastor hack. Uh, if, you, if you ever want to know how to, audio Bibles usually have that down. But all of that changed, and, and my view on this changed uh, about a year ago over the summer. A friend of mine, uh, he's actually my cousin, sorry, cousin, we're friends too, but he's down in Texas and he's real involved in the music sphere and one day out of the blue he just sends me a text that, hey, saw this and thought of you, check it out, let me know what you think. And it was a video, and it was a video on the lineage of Christ. And now every time I read this, I go watch that video and I worship. And so I want to share that video with you as we begin this series that's going to take us through the book of Matthew, that's going to help us learn to love like Jesus. So I hope you enjoy it. I'll be back up in a minute.
Now the first service clapped for that. You can clap if you want to. You don't have to, but I clapped. I cried the first time I watched that, and I wanted to share it with you for a couple reasons. The first is if you can make a list of names into a beautiful piece of art like that, somebody ought to share it. And it blows me away. That's only got like 25,000 views, and I'm thinking, come on. If you want to look at it again, the band is, or the group is called Poor Bishop Hooper. Poor Bishop Hooper. They've got a whole collection of things like that. It's really, really cool, and all of them are absolutely beautiful. The second reason that I shared that with you is because as I watched it this last week or two, as I was preparing for this message, I saw a beautiful illustration in that video. And the illustration is this. You may have noticed if you're into the technical side of music at all that there were instruments playing when they weren't playing instruments. Anybody pick up on that? They would play something, they would record the loop for that bar of music, and then they could replay that loop and they could layer something else in and something else in and something else in. And so they built that song live 
as we went through it. And I saw a beautiful illustration there for our spiritual lives. They get richer, they get deeper, they get more beautiful the more consistent we are with them and the more we layer into our relationship with Jesus. So yeah, you can, you can come to church once a week and check that box. Or you can come to church once a week and read the Bible once or twice a week or read the Bible every day or, or go beyond just reading Scripture and, and really engaging and asking God to speak to you personally through it and pray, and meet with a small group, and meet with a a one-on-one with somebody, and you can build all these layers into your spiritual life, and, and through consistency, you can build this beautiful, rich tapestry. The choice is yours, but too many people kind of settle for one or two layers, hit and miss intermittently. And uh, that's why we're such big advocates for the Banding Together journals. We talk about this on a regular basis. In fact, this year we've got our preaching matches up with a reading plan that's in the journal with the idea that you can read a chapter or two, a scripture a day, and go beyond that and actually focus on one or two verses and ask God to speak to you through that process. And then you can meet with a small group of people and discuss what God is sharing with you. And all of this adds up to this rich tapestry. Then when you come in to worship once a week, it has a totally different impact on you because because it's not trying to, you know, like go to a buffet once a week and count that for all 21 meals that you need. You're feeding yourself on a regular basis. You're growing and building that on a regular basis. And so as we kind of kick off the fall here, we're back. Uh, Summer is pretty much over. I'm sorry if that kind of bums you out, but it's the reality and we're moving into fall and we can feel that in the crisp, cool air of the morning. Um, We can feel that uh, with the way things cool off at night. We can see colors starting to change. And for many people, summer is a wonderful time of going places and doing things, and it's a really easy time to get derailed from our, from our personal spiritual disciplines, from our walk with the Lord, from our Bible reading and our prayer and our journaling and the other things. And so if you're not doing this, I would encourage you to start. And, and if you're not doing this, but you're doing something else, continue with that. This isn't the only thing, okay? Some people, I think, have gotten the mistaken that if you're not doing banding together, you're not a Christian. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. And if you're doing something else, great, keep doing that. But if you're not doing anything, this is a tool. This is a resource. And if you've gotten derailed, and I would encourage you to start again. I would encourage you to come back. I know for me personally, the end of June, I drove across the state. We had our district conference. I took a little bit of vacation, biked the Mickelson Trail. It was wonderful. I came back. It was the 4th of July. Then I drove back across the state for summer camp. And then I came back. We had a really busy weekend. Had an awesome weekend celebrating Bill Canan, who was pastor here for so long. And then I drove back across the state for another summer camp, came back, got sick, got COVID, lost a couple of weeks to that. I had like a six-week chunk that blew a hole in a lot of my practices, and they were intermittent. They were hit and miss. Now, I didn't fall completely aside. You don't have to, you know, hashtag pray for Pastor Mark. He derailed. It wasn't anything like that. But Journaling went from five or six days a week to one or two days a week. Uh, You know, it it got difficult because so much of my routine was upset. And there were some positives that came out of that, but I can't tell you how wonderful it has been to get back into those. Middle of August, I started back into the journals and started back into my prayer journal and started back into my physical routines. And, and, And I layer stuff in on top of that. So when I'm running or I'm walking or you see me on the bike trail, I got the podcasts in, I'm learning, I'm growing, I'm listening to sermons. So, so there's all kinds of things that, that have been different about my life these past six weeks 
than the six weeks just before that. And maybe that describes you, and maybe today's the day you draw the line on the sand and you say, you know what? I want to start building those layers. I want to start experiencing the richness that's available to me. And just one last little disclaimer, because some people think, well, Pastor Mark's going to be mad at me if I don't, if I don't read this, read my chapter, do my journal. No, I'm not going to be mad at you, I promise. I might be sad for you, because I know what this is doing in the lives of people that are doing it or doing something similar. I know what it's doing in their lives because they've told me their story. And I know what it's not doing in the lives of people who aren't doing anything or what it's kind of doing in the lives of people who are kind of doing something. So I want to encourage you to, to re-engage as we start this new series, Loving Like Jesus. As we look at the Gospel of Matthew for these next five weeks, we'll be camped out in Matthew learning what it looks like to love people like Jesus. And looking at that from a number of different viewpoints, we're going to find that loving like Jesus is also progressive. It comes in layers. Very, very few people make a profession of faith in Christ and immediately look just like Him in every area of their lives. If you thought that that's how it worked and were disappointed that it didn't, I want to encourage you that sometimes it's a process. In my life, it's been a process. Things didn't change a whole lot right away, and then they started to change, and as I built more layers into what it meant to be in relationship with Jesus, that relationship deepened, and we began to experience deeper fellowship, and spiritual disciplines were built in, and habits changed, and I stopped doing certain things, and I started doing other things, and this is the case for the majority, the vast majority of people who come to faith in Christ and get serious about learning to look like and love like Jesus. It's progressive. It requires a shift in priorities. It requires some intentionality, and over time, you begin serving, and you begin to give, and you begin to to express care and compassion to people that didn't used to even show up on your radar. And suddenly, you start to change, and you develop more humility, and you develop more kindness, and you see the fruit of the Spirit start popping up in your own life, and all of this is progressive. And so today, as we get things started, we're not going to go blow by blow through the genealogy that we just watched the beautiful video of, but we are going to look at Joseph. In the paragraph just after that genealogy, there's some really cool insights into Joseph, who was the earthly father of Jesus. And I've titled this message, Loving Like Joseph. I find Joseph to be an absolutely fascinating man. And if you will study him and study his life and try to put yourself in his shoes, there are some fascinating insights that you can have, that you can gain as you learn to love like Jesus through the window of learning to love like Joseph. And so we're going to start with Matthew 1, 18 through 25. If you're not already there, you can turn there. Those verses will be on the screen behind me. But before we dive in there, I want to give you just a little bit of, a, of an insight into the Gospel of Matthew and what maybe is unique about the Gospel of Matthew. Because I remember somebody who was no church background told me, so I started reading the New Testament because everybody was telling me I needed to read the New Testament. So I read the book of Matthew, and I learned about Jesus coming. And I was familiar with some bits and pieces of that from the Christmas story and all the things that he did and the things that he taught. And, and then he, you know, gets crucified. He gets betrayed and crucified, and they put him in the ground, and he resurrects from the dead. And I thought that was amazing. And then I flipped the page, and I, I read about Jesus coming to the world and teaching a bunch of things. And I'm like, did this happen again? Did, did like, he get resurrected to do it all over again? And he didn't understand 
that there are four Gospels that tell the same story, but by four different human authors to four different audiences. And so when we look at the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was a follower of Jesus. He was one of his disciples. He was Matthew the tax collector. He started out as Levi, and his name was changed. He was Jewish by birth, but he had betrayed his people to become a tax collector for the Roman government. He was despised among all the people in the world by his own people. But he becomes a follower of Jesus Christ, and he becomes a gospel writer. You talk about a story of transformation. It's a powerful one. And because he was Jewish, and he was writing to a Jewish audience, you'll see things in Matthew that you don't see in the other Gospels, not because they didn't happen, but because the context requires him to share that this prophecy was fulfilled, or that prophecy was fulfilled, or, or there's the whole structure of the book of Matthew is oriented, oriented around five main teaching sections, like the five books that Moses wrote, Genesis through Deuteronomy, that there's structural similarities to Israel's past that are built into the book that a Jewish audience would pick up on and be aware of and say, oh, that's kind of interesting how that all comes together. And so that's what's going on with Matthew. It's similar to Luke. It's similar to Mark. It's similar to John, but not maybe as similar to John, because John takes a different approach. He, he focuses on the broadest possible audience, and he has fewer stories that go deeper into what it was like to follow Jesus around. What was Jesus thinking? And so it's really fascinating to read the different Gospels and to kind of understand where they are coming from. So with that in mind, we look at Verse 18, I'm going to kind of go one or two or three verses at a time uh, to kind of break this down and walk through this passage. Because it's a passage that a lot of us are familiar with, right? Even if you only come to church on Christmas and Easter, you're kind of familiar with Matthew chapter 1. Like, you've heard the story. There'll be some familiarity in Matthew 1 and 2. But this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Push pause. Because <laughs> this is one of those passages that is so familiar that it's easy to read over and miss the significance of this. And so I want you to try, if you can, to imagine that you're Joseph and that you don't have the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. You don't have the Gospel of Luke. You don't, you don't have any of that other stuff that fills in some of the very necessary details to the verse that we just read. You're just Matthew a young Jewish man who's betrothed or pledged to a young Jewish woman, and now she's found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. There would be no context for by the Holy Spirit at that point, right? There was only one way to get pregnant before Jesus. There's only been one way to get pregnant since Jesus, but Jesus was the one time that abstinence didn't work, right? So the Holy Spirit is the cause behind this pregnancy, but, but Joseph doesn't even know that yet. So put yourself in his shoes for a minute. Okay? This is big stuff. They're not yet fully married, which is an, an interesting insight. If you understand Jewish betrothal, there was an arrangement that was taking place between the families, and once they were pledged, it was a done deal. They were legally bound. They just hadn't had the formal ceremony, and they hadn't uh, come together to live as man and wife. But by all the people in their community, which was a small village, close-knit community, they were, they were husband and wife. Oh, well, that's Joseph. He's going to marry Mary. We're going to have the festival in a couple of months. That's, that's the mindset. 
And so it was an arranged, binding, legal commitment. They were legally married even though they had not yet come together. And if we piece together the Luke narrative, she spent three months with her cousin Elizabeth. And you can read about that in Luke chapter 1. So she goes away, she's gone, and that's kind of weird. And then she comes back, and Joseph, we're told, is faced with a decision. She's found with child. She comes back four or five months pregnant, and it's obvious something has taken place. And how Joseph responds in that moment tells us an awful lot about him. Verse 19, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, this is before the angel has visited him. This tells you a lot about the character that Joseph brought into this moment, okay? This is really important because it tells us that he was righteous, but not just righteous, he was kind. He was kind. Unlike the Pharisees that caused Jesus all kinds of trouble in his earthly ministry, Joseph was righteous and kind, even before the gospel or the angel visits. He didn't have the rest of the story. And the only explanation that he would have had was a firsthand account from Mary that an angel visited me and told me that I was going to conceive a child by the Holy Spirit. Like, how believable is that to this young man? And yet we're told that he didn't want to expose her to public disgrace. He was righteous, which means he wants to uphold the law. And the law actually says that the penalty for adultery, which was the logical conclusion given the circumstances, the penalty for adultery was divorce and even death by stoning. So he has a right to dismiss her and to even have a public stoning, which would have disgraced her family for generations to follow, or if he didn't go so far as pressing that charge, he could have publicly disgraced her family, which would have made her unmarriable for the rest of her life. Yet he chooses to try to just be kind, to deal with the matter quietly. It's almost as if he understands our bottom line, that just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. Just because you have the right to do something, that does not mean it's the right thing to do. Joseph had a right to have Mary stoned to death. But he chooses to forgo that right. And I think we need more of that today. And I know I can't utter that statement without everybody's mind going to a specific place. To masks and vaccines and political and all of those things. And yes, maybe the Spirit will deal with you on that issue, but I want to encourage you to bring it home and to say, am I willing to forgo my rights as a husband or a wife, as a parent or a child? Because, and realize that just because I have the right to do something or demand something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. You see, we live in a nation where a lot of people are more concerned with their rights than they are with their responsibilities. And the church as a whole across our nation around the world, we have to make sure that we're as focused on our responsibilities as a follower of Christ as we are on our own personal rights. Am I saying don't ever stand up for your rights? No, I'm absolutely not saying that. However, I don't think you can argue with the statement that there are an awful lot of Christians 
who know more about their political party's platform than they do about Jesus' kingdom mission. And I don't believe that's what we're called to. I believe we're called to know Jesus' kingdom mission and to put that first and foremost. And there are an awful lot of husbands and wives that know more about their rights as a husband or wife than they do about their responsibilities as a husband or wife. And Jesus calls us to forgo our rights sometimes. And beyond that, you would be hard-pressed to find a passage in Scripture that exhorts God's people to stand up for their rights. You can find a lot of passages that say just the opposite. In fact, like Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of those who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. There is absolutely a time for advocacy. There is a time to speak up for the rights of those who cannot speak for themselves. The unborn come to mind. They cannot speak for themselves. Nobody's going to advocate for them if people don't stand up and advocate for them. So there are times to advocate. There are times to speak up for the rights. But you'll find in Scripture, at least, most of those times are external. Most of the times that we are called to stand up for the rights of somebody, it's somebody else. It's not us. It's not my personal rights. And I think that's important that we understand that. James 1.27 says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. It's a great extension of the Proverbs verse that, that there are people who are destitute. There are people who have no one to advocate for them. And Scripture tells us repeatedly to advocate for them. And when we do, we must be sure that we do it as ambassadors of Christ, that we do it as name bearers and image bearers of Christ, that we do it in the way that He would do it, and that we focus on dealing with the issue, advocating for the issue, and not attacking the people. Because there's way too much of that going on right now, and way too much stereotyping, and there's way too much at the big level and down at the small level of interpersonal relationships, where we're so focused on our own individual rights that we forget that we have a responsibility, too, to go and to love. And this isn't just something that pops up a few places. This is a characteristic of Jesus' ministry that's a powerful characteristic. I mean, think about this. He was the Son of God. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He had all authority under heaven and earth had been given to him. And did he ever claim his rights? Did he ever demand his rights? He routinely did just the opposite. And Paul, the great letter writer of the New Testament, the great missionary, the great ambassador for Christ, he says something so powerful in Philippians chapter 2 where he basically says, forego your rights just like Jesus foregoed his rights. And so I want to read this passage. It's not going to be on the screens behind me. If you want to turn to Philippians chapter 2, you can. It's a lengthy passage. It's longer than I would normally share, but I just couldn't find a place to cut it off. It's, it's so good and it's so instructive. And so he says in Philippians chapter 2, and he's writing to the church at Philippi, to a community, community of people, maybe not unlike Linwood Wesleyan Church. He says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, so he's writing to believers, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy, make Paul's joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
But instead, in humility, consider others better than yourself. Put, put the needs of others before your own. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude, not just your outward actions. Your inward attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, he was God himself, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the call. That's the vision. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's Jesus. Now here he turns to us specifically. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Allow God to work in you and to do everything that you do as God would if he were you, as Jesus would if he were you. Do everything without complaining or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. That's our marching orders, to shine like stars in the universe, to stand out. Way too many just kind of blend in. We just look like the rest of the people. The divorce rate in the church is similar to the divorce rate out of the church. The types of things that people fight about in the church are similar to the types of things people fight about outside the church because people aren't willing to forgo their rights. And he's saying we should shine like stars in the universe as we hold out the word of light in order that Paul may boast on the day of Christ that he did not labor for nothing. And he closes this way. He says, even if I, even if Paul, the great church planner, missionary, even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. And so you should be glad and rejoice with me. He's talking about humility. And the best definition I've ever heard for humility is the noble ability to use your power for the good of others. That's, that's putting others first. That's looking to the interests of others. And we see that in Christ, and we see that in what Paul is, is exhorting us to do. And we see all of this in Joseph before the angel ever visits. And that's kind of what blew my mind this time. This was a part of who Joseph was. And so, in verse 20, when the angel does come, after Joseph had considered this, I think that's an important side note, he considered it. He didn't just fire back. He didn't make a quick decision. He considered it. He thought about it. He prayed about it. As he considered this, after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so he finally gets this angelic visitor that confirms Mary's story but does so in a paradigm-shifting way. There's not an attaboy way to divorce her quietly. There's, no, you take her home. She's your wife. Don't be afraid to do that. 
Yes, you live in a small community where everybody assumes that somebody else got her pregnant. Yes, there's going to be a lot of sidelong glances. Yes, there's going to be a lot of whispering in the background, and that's going to be a part of your life going forward as you take this woman home to be your wife. Oh, and you'll get to be the earthly father of the Son of God. How many guys want that responsibility? Right? We used to joke around with little kids, little boys. Every birthday, we kind of give each other a high five and a thumbs up. Hey, we kept him alive for another year. How would you like to have the Son of God as a little boy in your house? I just can't even imagine. And this idea at the end of verse 21, and you are to give him the name Jesus. I, I read a footnote that said, you know, naming sons was a really big deal, especially firstborn sons. It was a really big deal in this culture. And so it's almost as if the angel saying, you don't even get to name him. You don't get to pick the name. It's not going to be a family name. It's not going to be a name that, you know, honors somebody from your past. You're going to give him the name Jesus. And that was a loaded name as well, Yeshua, pointing back to Joshua, God's salvation, God is our salvation. Like there's all kinds of things that Joseph would have known when he heard that. And he would have also known that nothing he had planned for his life at that point was going to be the same. Nothing was going to be the same. Even before he found out, oh, there's a census. You get to take your pregnant wife several days journey down to Bethlehem. And then he wakes up in Bethlehem and the angel says, go to Egypt. I got a shop and a house and all kinds of stuff back in Nazareth and family. Go to Egypt. And he goes. He didn't know that this decision was going to cause him to leave behind everything. And so in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, not after he considered it some more, when he woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Immediate, complete obedience. That's a characteristic of Joseph that Jesus would have seen from his earthly father. Immediate, complete obedience. He wakes up, says, okay, it's a done deal. He could have sang our first song, your will, your way, always. I'm going to do it your way, God, even when I don't understand, even when it costs me greatly. I'm going to do it your way. I'm going to do the right thing. And it displays tremendous character. And we see this again if you read Matthew chapter 2 in verses 13 and 19, another angel visits him and gives him very specific instructions. And in the verses that follow, Joseph follows them exactly and immediately. This was a characteristic of Joseph. And as we learn to love like Joseph, immediate perfect obedience should be something that we strive for because it's something that we see in Joseph. And so when the angel tells him, get up in the middle of the night in Bethlehem and don't head back to Nazareth, go to Egypt and stay there until I tell you to come back. What? That's a, that's a several months journey and you don't know how long you're going to be there. And yet he immediately gets up and goes. In the final verse of this passage, he had no union with Mary until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Joseph acts with absolute integrity towards Mary and towards God. And he foregoes his rights as a husband once again in this area. And he chooses 
integrity and character and to forego his own rights and do what is honorable and respectable. And I just don't think Joseph gets enough credit for that. And so as we learn to love like Jesus, we can learn a lot by learning to love like Joseph as well. Because he understood that just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean that it's the right thing to do. Just because you have a right doesn't mean it is right. Just because you have the right to say something doesn't mean it's the right thing to say. Just because you have the right to do something doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. And it's really interesting, the, uh, the New International Version has multiple publication dates, and so we typically use the 1984 because that's what's in the seats, and, and that's the one I've done all my memory work from, so if I can memorize a passage or, or something like that, I prefer that one. But the 2010 words this key verse in verse 19 just slightly differently, and I actually like it better. It says, Joseph was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose Mary. To public disgrace. The old NIV says because Joseph was a righteous man and did not, the, the newer NIV kind of breaks down the language a little bit better. And if you look at the original language, it seems like it's saying he was a righteous man. He wanted to follow the law and yet, and yet, he did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace. He did the hard work of figuring out how to be right with God and right with people. Instead of like the Pharisees for most of, of their ministry, most of the Pharisees only focused on being right with God. And if it hurts other people, well, then too bad for them. But Joseph does that hard work of saying, I want to honor God and I want to live at peace with un- other people as much as I possibly can. And we see it in Joseph, we see it in Jesus, and we see it as a beautiful picture of our Heavenly Father. A beautiful picture of God because he is righteous and he is faithful to the law. And yet, it brings him no delight to, to bring harm or to bring punishment to people. And over and over in Scripture, he takes their place. Over and over in Scripture, he bears the brunt. Over and over in Scripture, he, he gives them a second chance and another second chance and another second chance. And you see it with people like David and you see it with people like Jonah and you see it throughout the Old Testament and then you see it in the New Testament as clearly as we possibly can. He says, I'm going to send myself, Jesus Christ, to come and live a perfect, sinless life, which nobody else has been able to do. And if there was ever anybody who could have claimed a right to get out of the cross, to get out of the punishment. It was Jesus. And yet, hours before his crucifixion, he's kneeling in the garden and he says, not my will, God, but yours. This is the only way we can bring him back. And he was willing to take the humiliation of the cross for us, for me, for you. And for everyone out there in this broken and fallen world, Jesus was willing to take the humiliation of the cross. And when we receive that gift and we receive the blank slate and we receive his payment for the penalty of our sin, then he asks us to go and do the same. To go and take the good news to others. And how often do we shy back from an opportunity because we don't want to be embarrassed or we don't want someone to make fun of us? And so we can learn a lot about loving like Jesus from his earthly father as well as his heavenly father, which will be our subject next week.
So however you choose to respond, my prayer as always is that you'll respond in faith. The altars are open. You can come to these middle altars and we'll take that as an indication you'd really rather pray alone. Just interact with God as we sing a closing song. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, you can go to the outside altars and we'll take that as an indication. You know, I'd really like to just feel somebody's hand on my shoulder praying for me as well. And if you'd like to leave a prayer request, you can go over to the corner here, the cross. You can write that prayer request on a slip of paper, roll that up, put it on the cross, leave it there. We don't look through those. We don't, we don't go over those. They're for you and God. But however you choose to respond, if you're at home, make an altar where you're seated and do business with God and say, God, what are you saying to me from your word today? And what do you want me to do with it? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for your word. And we thank you that you pursue us. That you were willing to forgo your own rights in order to bring us into the family of God. That you were willing to take the humiliation of the cross so that we could come and to spend eternity with you and to not be banished into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Lord, this is big stuff. It really matters. And what we do with it really matters. So if there's someone here today who has never responded in faith to the gospel, to the good news that there's a God that loves like that, then I pray today would be the day of salvation. I pray today would be the day that they confess that they need a Savior. Confessing their sins and inviting you to forgive them and to come into their lives and to transform them from the inside out. If there are those of us who who have gotten off track and it's time to come home, may we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you're not a God that's shaking your fist at us. You're God looking for us, pursuing us, coming after us. And that if there are those that are walking in close fellowship with you, Lord, would you give, would you give each of us a burning desire to, to take this good news to the world, to apply what we're learning into our own lives to be more like Jesus every day. It's in his name we pray. Amen.